Doctorate. Welcome to Posse of the People. In this episode, it's me, Sam, Kai, and DR, as usual, talking about all the news that you don't know from the past week. We learn a ton. I learn a ton every week. I love it myself. And then I sit down and talk to Dr. Elizabeth Meyer about biostatistics and how cancer research and treatment have disproportionate effects between races, genders, and sexual identities. Here we go. My advice for this week is to ask the questions yourself. Let me tell you that I realized that I should, there's a project, I should have been asking a lot more questions. Ask the questions yourself. Trust people and like let people do the work they do, but make sure you show up in the room and ask the question so that you understand things really well yourself. Ask the question. Let's go. Family, welcome to another episode of Pod Save the People. I am Diara Ballinger. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Diara Ballinger. I'm Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter. I'm Kaya Henderson at Henderson Kaya on Twitter. I'm DeRay at DIY on Twitter. So clearly a lot of the conversation should be and has been Afghanistan. What's going on in Afghanistan? what the implications of the United States government pulling out of Afghanistan have been, whether or not there was a plan to evacuate people in a timely fashion, whether there should now be an extension of getting folks out because still up in the air how things are going. We're seeing, you know, images of like empty planes that are leaving the airports. Obviously the chaos and these like now compelling iconic photos that are like lasered into our our minds of the suffering and the people just kind of in Kabul waiting to get out, um, desperate to get out. So many themes obviously surface when, you know, just in the conversation around Afghanistan and and this government and its military, um, its interventions in places, its colonialism in places, All of that aside, though, really trying to get an understanding of what is the plan and how are we going to get, I think there's still 300,000 Americans in Afghanistan, but then also the people who the United States government has employed the 20 years that we've been in Afghanistan and their families and all, you know, being at risk now with the Taliban in power. So lots of thoughts, lots of things, you know, someone who worked at the United States State Department, I do not envy our colleagues and friends who are there now. It is a very difficult job. It's a, you know, multi-agency coordination that's happening. It's a day and night job to really answer all the questions that are that are happening now. So, yeah, just kicking it off with that. What are, what are, what are we thinking about Afghanistan, y'all? As many people have said, it was sort of wild to see Bush, Trump just completely erased from the narrative about how we got here. Like, it was like, all of a sudden, Biden made these mistakes. And you're like, uh, Biden didn't put us there, right? It feels like there should have been a better plan for the rollout of leaving, for sure. But he didn't get us there. It was frustrating to watch the media just allow Bush to be off the hook. I also just, it made me, I mean, the thought that there were so many people who helped the Americans out and that we did not do everything humanly possible to help them is just heinous, bad, you know, just every type of word that is. And that is going to have repercussions for us far into the future because any other place that we want to work that we need help, people are going to be like, nah, I'll take the pass on that because I see how you treated the Afghan folks who worked for you. I don't know. And and they worked for us for a long time. You know, it wasn't like you did some weekend work last weekend. It's like people who have been translators for the Americans for a long... It's like we just didn't even... The planning on that was just not there. So that was... 
also wild. And the and the last thing is um is I'm reminded that Trump made a deal with the Taliban. Say and it that now. Feels, Say it. That feels like it really did just like get swept away in the conversation that like he was actually talking to them and not the Afghan government in a way that that I think really set us all up. So remember that part of the Trump deal was that the U.S. would release 5,000 Taliban prisoners and that the Taliban would release 1,000 of its prisoners. It makes sense to me that the army probably did stop fighting. Could you imagine like locking 5,000 people up and then in one fell swoop, Trump is like, hey, just let them all out. I wouldn't come back to work either. I'd be like, get me out of here. Because those people definitely remember all the people that locked them up. You know, like they remember that. You know, Biden should have had a better rollout, but he did not make this. So the only thing I'll add is is that war is just not, like it doesn't work, right? Like I don't know how else to say this, right? Like there's this idea that, like war is going to solve things. And like, you know, you go back to 2001 and like, I was like 11, right? I was like this kid, right? So this is a 20 year period. This is a generation, right? A generation of just war. And in the end, you see it all topple in like a week, right? All of that investment, billions, billions, trillions of dollars, people died, hundreds of thousands of people died, Afghans, uh, Americans, all kinds of people died. And in a week, the whole thing just collapses. The Taliban takes over. They obtain that military weaponry and are now using it against people. What was this for? Mm-hmm. You know, like why, like this did, not only did this fail, right? And we should say like this was a failed war, a lost war again, right? Like not the first Vietnam we lost. We lost this. And like we probably shouldn't be doing future wars because we're not good at winning them. <laughs> so we probably should like think about, you know, like there is this like, 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 I'm just not, I'm not trying to be like a hater. I'm trying to be real, right? Because I think there's this idea after World War II that like America is capable of doing anything and like is this dominant power, superpower that nobody can mess with and that can just run roughshod over any country, any group, and face no consequences and be successful at achieving an objective. And like, that sounds good. And I think some of us like believe that, right? And I think the reaction to the Taliban retaking Afghanistan has been having to come to grips with the fact that that's a myth, that that is a lie, that like war actually doesn't achieve the objective that we set out to achieve. And that if anything, we have now re-strengthened the Taliban and given them more equipment than they had before the last time we gave the Mujahideen equipment, including Osama bin Laden, in the same area when we were mm-hmm. fighting the Soviets. So, like, we did this again. Mm-hmm. So, I don't know. It's like, how many times are we going to keep doing this with our own taxpayer money? And then in the end, I mean, there, were, there was a lot that was accomplished in terms of you know, creating space for a different society, creating space for removing a regime that was egregious and totalitarian and just barbaric in so many ways but long term like did all of those were all those things sustainable like will all of those things ultimately be what 10 years 20 years down the road Afghanistan looks like and like it's an open question but it's not looking good Um, and we ought to reevaluate like our foreign policy with that in mind like we ought to course correct and not think about America as this colonial power that can just step in and impose a particular type of uh, system, a particular type of arrangement that, you know, clearly was not sustainable. That was not something that, frankly, had the power or the legitimacy to defeat the Taliban. And that's what we're seeing. Um, so it's just sort of a, almost like a growing up where, you know, in as a kid, you see, you know, 9-11, there's like all of this sort of 
uh, going to war, you know, and now you're seeing sort of the end of that, the conclusion of that. What was it all for? Um, and I think that the facts speak for themselves. One of the things that's interesting to me is that people are entering this conversation about Afghanistan without having a clear sense of the history. We've been there for 20 years. Before that, Russia was there for 20 mm-hmm. years, right? The desire to stabilize Afghanistan as a key you know, country in the Middle East to prevent terrorism and a bunch of other things has been a long-standing concern, and now two superpowers have tried and failed. The Brits tried too and failed. Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. And in fact, what we've done is completely destabilize the Middle East at this point. And the same was true with Iraq, right? Like part of weapons of mass destruction, okay, sort of, but also how do we stabilize a country that was literally on the brink in the middle of a bunch of other countries on the brink? And to your point, Sam, this is not, we're not good at this job. And so I think it does bring about questions in terms of our future foreign policy. But like one of the things that I feel is really important in these kinds of things is truth and reconciliation. Like, saying really clearly, we didn't do a good job, here's why, here's what we can do to help moving forward since we have pulled out, I think is really important as soon as we get the rest of these folks out. I think the other thing is watching this humanitarian crisis is heartbreaking. I came, I flew back into the U.S. yesterday and I flew into Dulles Airport where literally there were thousands of people in the customs line um, and many of them are Afghan refugees. I was in the baggage claim area and there are bags everywhere because the customs line is backed up and there are just tons of garbage bags, like people who had their belongings in garbage bags, like people who literally had the clothes on their back and one garbage bag. And these are the lucky ones who've gotten out. Mm-hmm. You watch, you know, video of folks who are literally begging for food. You hear about girls and women being told to stay inside because the soldiers haven't been trained how to not snatch them and rape them. I mean, this is a full out humanitarian crisis. And our response is we just got to get out of there. And so I, I believe we got to get out of there. But it really feels yucky to watch this thing go down. Oh, yeah, now we're just going to bomb. Like, the whole thing is a cluster. And, I like, I don't know what the answers are. Clearly, we don't know what the answers are. We like to think that we are better than this, that we're more coordinated than this, that the military minds who have put this together might have done something different. It is heart-wrenching to watch all of this stuff go down and to watch us be like, we just got to get out of there. All of that is so right, Kai. And I think the only thing that I'll add just on the, the the larger picture in terms of like how we're engaging with anyone that we are trying to quote-unquote help or develop, most Western nations, their approach to development, it is so bureaucratic. You can say we're going to have a 10-year program to build democracy in country X, but if you have a change in administration, that program can go away. One, it's just like how we how the whole entire system is set up But then also to the core of the system, like Americans can't agree on what democracy is. So how are we going to go somewhere and build democracy? Right. So I think we saw with Trump, like, you know, I was following foreign policy and following development, you know, in a lot of places, particularly on the continent where we had tons and tons of resources and programmings for family planning. They took that away because they don't believe in that. So I think even as we're doing this work, and, you know, yes, we've been in Afghanistan for 20 years, but it's also been 
multiple administrations with multiple points of view on what democracy is. And that's why there hasn't been consistent progress because it's been incremental and it's been incremental in ways that's like, okay, we're going to pivot this way or now we're going to do this or now we're going to do that or resources are going to go here and not there. So I think back to like the programs that I worked out on at state and I would go to a country where they spoke one language, but they have, they're given equipment where the instructions are in a different language. How that's supposed to work. So my news this week is about the House debate that happened this week on the John R. Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act. You know, I just kind of wanted to zoom out because what's been heavy on my mind is that it's the 58th, this past week was like the 58th um, anniversary of the March on Washington, where they, guess what, March for Voting Rights. And here we are in the summer of 2021, and guess what? We're marching for voting rights. Guess who's speaking at the march? So, you know, we all know Revenal, National Action Network, our aunties, uncles, cousins, cousins, cousins put together this march and we are grateful for them. Martin Luther King III spoke. The descendants of the people who were marching in 1963 and John Lewis, for whom his skull was busted crossing the Selma Bridge. Here we are, 58 years later, still trying to get some voting rights. And the things that these Republicans were saying on that House floor about voting rights, I mean, it's like Strom Thurmond has been resurrected and put back into the House chamber. I just am so confused. You know, Sam, you talked about, you know, being 11 when when 9-11 happened. It's like... This has been people's entire lifetime. So what's wild about this is just seeing the escalation from Republicans in terms of voter suppression. It's not just that we're still talking about voting rights and we still need voting rights. It's that the Republicans are getting even worse. That's right. They still thinking yeah, of now we're going to do this. They're doing new things now. They were on voter ID. We're talking about voter ID. We're talking about barriers to voter registration, purges on lists. Like, we've been talking about that for decades. It's been happening. They've been getting worse with that. We saw how Brian Kemp used that to cheat and get himself governorship in Georgia against Stacey Abrams. So, again, like, those are common tactics. We've seen those. But now they're passing laws that allow them to just say, even if you you get the most votes, well, now we might be able to just completely overrule the result of the election anyway. We might be able to just replace the person counting the votes. So, like, that's a whole nother thing. Like, that is not even just, like, voter suppression. That is, like, it don't matter if you vote. Like, don't matter if you suppress. Don't matter if you turn out. Don't matter. It doesn't matter because we're just going to change the results anyway. Like, we're just going to fudge the numbers. Just going to delete these votes. Like, it doesn't even Like, you don't even have an election. So, like, that is what they're on now. And so this is why we need legislation, federal legislation, to empower the federal government to intervene in these states, most of which are in the South, most of which are the same exact states that were the, doing the same exact things mm-hmm. back in the 60s and the 50s and the 40s, et cetera. So the same problems, adding new layers of systematic barriers to voting on top of the existing layers that we've been talking about and that past generations have been talking about and that legislation hasn't fully fixed. So this isn't a problem that's getting better, it's a problem that's getting worse and we need to be able federally to intervene and stop this before it gets to the point where you don't have a ability to even elect somebody who can stop this. You don't even have the power to turn out and vote because your vote can just get tossed out. Like it can, the, the numbers, the counting, like you know, they can just choose not to certify it. And we, they tried it already. Like, we know that's what they're going to try again. So, again, like, it's wild to, to see, like, the urgency of this 
it's clear, and yet it comes down to the same sort of tactical conversation every time. Is Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema going to eliminate the filibuster and pass this? That's like the question. That's all we need to know. Like, are they going to modify, eliminate, reform the filibuster so we can get those 50 votes in the Senate to pass this because it already passed the House? That's what mm -hmm. we need. Mm -hmm. And we don't know. Like, like, we still don't know. They signaled that they might be willing to at least vote for the legislation, even though they might not be willing to end the filibuster in order to pass it, which isn't good enough. So it's still, we're still stuck with the same two people standing in the way. So that's sort of the political conversation. It's part of the same problem. I mean, we're talking about it's not a coincidence who these people are. It's not a coincidence that they are folks who, you know, a white senator from West Virginia, a white senator from Arizona, um, folks who are not necessarily going to come through for us and that we need to be thinking about how do we put enough pressure on them to fall in line with the rest of the party to make this possible. Otherwise, we might be staring at, you know, another four years, eight years, 16 years, et cetera, of Republican rule and imposing these restrictions again and again and again at the state level, refusing to intervene at the federal level um, and bringing us back to where we were in the 60s. So my news is about Los Angeles, where uh, you might recall that last year the LAPD, uh, among many other uh, cities across the country in Los Angeles, there was a big push to cut the police budget. Uh, there was an announcement that there would be a $150 million cut uh, made to the LAPD budget. Um, but it turns out that you know, at the time, it, there was a lot of questions about whether these cuts would ultimately bear out in the future, in part because they relied on some gimmicks. And one of those gimmicks was the calculation of overtime. So in LA, one of the ways in which they were able to propose a cut to the police budget was by proposing to cut the amount of overtime that officers work. Now, it turns out that in 2020, uh, the 2020 to 2021 fiscal year, there was a reduction in overtime among officers. However, it turns out that because of the budget shortfall that the city had, they basically charged that overtime, that extra overtime that officers worked, about $47 million to basically the city's credit card. So what that means is it's not just that they're going to have to pay for that overtime. It's that they're actually going to have to pay more in the future uh, because they'll have to pay at the rate of the officer's current salary um, when they ultimately pay out that money. Um, and they still haven't announced when they're going to pay out that money. Um, so this is a practice that I didn't even know that LA was doing or other cities. Um, basically charging overtime hours to a credit card, gave, giving uh, officers an IOU that you worked overtime last year, but because of budget cuts, we're not going to pay you now. We're going to pay you at some point in the future, as much as 20 years in the future. Um, so essentially, LA is racking up a debt. And that debt is ultimately going to cost more than the total cost of the overtime hours that officers are working because of those increases in officer salary down the road. Um, so all that means is the $150 million cut that was proposed is not ultimately going to be a $150 million cut. At best, $47 million of that is not going to the $150 million. Um, but it's actually going to be some amount more than $47 million um, that actually ends up getting paid out anyway because of the method in which the city went about this. Um, so all of that is to say that, you know, we heard a lot from cities across the country that they were going to cut police budgets. Some cities uh, responded to that, others did not. Um, but there were a lot of gimmicks involved in that. And some of these are so political 
um, that it sounded like they were going to be making moves and doing big things, uh, but it turns out that they just charged us on the credit card that, that is even worse than if they just paid the overtime right now. They actually are going to end up paying the police more um, because they pushed this down the road. Um, so this is like a part of a broader conversation about the direction of policing in this country. Um, we're seeing a, sh a lot of pushback and a backlash to defund, not only in L.A., but also in Austin, where one of the largest cuts that was made to any city's police budget um, was in Austin. They cut the police budget by a third. The state backlash to that passed a law um, that actually re not only requires Austin to reverse those cuts, which they have proposed to do, um, but essentially bans any city within Texas from cutting the police budget without a special waiver from the governor. Um, so that's already in place in Texas. Florida has already done something similar. Um, we're seeing in LA that what was proposed ultimately isn't going to be what, what is going to be cut. Um, so, you know, it's important to keep tabs on what's happening. A lot was announced last year, um, but a lot of that is not ultimately coming to pass. Um, and folks' feet need to be held to the fire to ultimately be held accountable to making good on the promises that they made last year. I think that this is actually true of a lot of the simple calls to action that we have around these very complex problems. These problems aren't so intractable because people haven't thought about them. In fact, there are lots of ways to deal with, I mean, this is schools, this is policing, this is housing, this is healthcare. It's like whack-a-mole. You might do something on one hand and create other opportunities with another hand. One of the things that um, kind of piqued my interest is my history with labor negotiations. And when the city owes policemen or teachers or whatever, outstanding money, that is the best bargaining tool that labor has because they will extract not just that money from you, but four or five other things that they want because you owe them. And so not only does this put the city in a precarious financial position, but it puts Los Angeles in a precarious labor negotiating position because they owe these folks money. And you can believe that the police union is going to make good on what is owed. And I think that it's really important for other folks who are making these kinds of cuts to look at what's happening in Texas, in Austin, to look at how states are backfilling even courageous individual decisions, to look at the implications on labor, to look at the implications on the city's future financial picture. This stuff is complex. And while I appreciate the calls to action and the urgency and whatnot, and you'll hear this come up as a theme in my news later on, protests will get us only some of the way there. Deep policy change is really necessary if we wanna see the kind of change that we are fighting for. But I know y'all know that better than me. So my news is on a similar theme around unfulfilled promises as a result of the protests and racial reckoning that has happened over the last year or so. Um, there, This is a fascinating study that um, was just released by the Washington Post called Corporate America's $50 billion Promise. And what the Post did is they analyzed 
the corporate commitments, right? After, in the wake of the George Floyd murder and and after all of the other things that were happening last year, as you know, every company worth their salt made commitments towards racial justice and reducing inequality and all of these other things. And this analysis is looking at data and the commitment statements from 44 of the 50 most valuable companies to see how they have done over the last year. It is a fascinating study. I'm just going to say straight out the gate, there is so much here that you need to read this study for yourself. We're only going to sort of skim the highlights. The biggest like takeaway is that America's 50 biggest public companies and their foundations committed $49.5 billion, with a B, so roughly $50 billion, since George Floyd's murder last May to addressing racial inequality. Um, More than 90% of that amount is allocated as loans or investments that they could actually stand to profit from. So again, DeRay, this is the the people who know the game know how to play it. I'm making $50 billion in commitments and $45 billion of it I could stand to profit from. Fascinating. Two banks, JPMorgan Chase and Bank of America, accounted for nearly all all of those commitments, nearly all of those commitments. And in that 45 billion, only 71 million went specifically to criminal justice organizations, which that was the whole thing, right? Police policing, et cetera. In fact, when you look overall, the amount committed is actually less than 1% of the net income earned from these 50 companies. So A, we're gonna give you a teeny little bit, 50 billion sounds like a lot, but when you look at net income of these 50 big companies, it's actually less than 1% of their income. Some of these commitments are over 10 years, and at the end of the day, the vast majority of these companies that are making the commitments stand to profit. There's also no real way to measure the results of these commitments, and nobody is accountable because there's nobody who is tracking all of this stuff. And corporations aren't required to report where all the money is going or what its impact looks like. So big dollar amounts being committed, no idea whether this money is being dispersed or where this money is going, and um, there's no way overall to actually measure the impact of this commitment. 37 companies responded to 37 of the 50 um, confirmed that they have dispersed $1.7 billion of the $50 billion. Did you hear me? 1.7, they committed $50 billion and only $1.7 billion has been dispersed based on the data that the Post could compile. And seven companies refuse to provide any data or to outline how much they've already spent. Many of the commitments were made around homeownership, were made around business loans, um, were made around banking, education, and additional commitments like diversifying their C-suites at these companies and buying from black businesses. And largely, I think what the report shows is These are more unfulfilled promises. These are more ways that folks who know the game are actually using the game, even though they have made these big commitments. Um, There are a few organizations who have 
benefited tremendously from this. Um, so they have an analysis of the organizations that have gotten the most um, corporate donations as a result of these pledges. And they are the Urban League, the Equal Justice Initiative, the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, and historically black colleges and universities. But only eight of these 50 companies gave to Black Lives Matters groups, and only three companies gave to the Center for Policing Equity. I'll just add that, you know, I am always shocked at how little people are both willing and ready and frankly capable to do the structural change. I had a call with a big um with a big firm and they were like, we believe it did. And I was like, do something about the police. And they were like, well, we'll have to take it back to the committee and think about the writ. I'm like, well, what's the, what was the commitment? Did the police killing people? That's the only reason you even know who I am. Like say, uh, say reparations, you, say reparations to a board and see like, see what, what did you think I was going to ask you to do? I don't like, I don't, don't fund me. I don't need like Dre doesn't like, I need you to do something about police. And they're like, well, you know, I, the committee has to approve. I'm like, okay, okay, okay. That, the second thing is I do think that if money could fix it, it would have fixed it. So like I'm not convinced that like the money, the money only strategy is a strategy. The third thing I'll say around the structural piece is that I don't know where people got hoodwinked about like individual success. So I like Lil Baby, the rapper. I like him. He just did a bicycle giveaway and he does all these giveaways in Atlanta that are really powerful. My worry is that you, all of us on this call know that there is no amount of bicycles we can give people in the hood that's going to take them out of poverty. It just is not, there's just, it will not, there's no amount of turkeys on Thanksgiving. It's no amount of book bags and back to school. Like that is, it literally is not the strategy. And people are just hooing to believe that like, if we give people tennis shoes, that is like the structure. And you're like, it's not, it's not the fix. It Money might help, like direct cash. There are a million ways to do reparations at the structural level, like child care, like things that would have a meaningful impact at scale. And we have got to figure out how to popularize those things. Because I saw a little baby get with those bicycles and I at once was like, this is dope. And like, goodness, can we help him understand some of the structural stuff? Because if he leaned in on that, it would actually be, it would have a scalable impact that was far greater than whoever walked into the park that day and got a bike. Okay, so my news is taking us out of this, uh, these conversations and really talking about something that I was just uh, fascinated by and wanted to bring it here is muscle dysmorphia. So it, this article in Insider Magazine talks about eating disorders as a conversation that most in the public conversation is confined to white women. It's like, you know, white women have uh, eating disorders and that is how we have told the story in public. And I'd never even thought about the way that eating disorders show up for men. And what the article goes on to talk about is muscle dysmorphia. Part of one of the consequences of COVID is that there's an 88% increase in the people who before the pandemic would exercise one or two times a week with 60% of the men saying that their top reason was for their mental health. But they go on to talk about how some men suffer from what they call muscle dysmorphia, that they're hyper fixated on building muscle and looking ripped with weight and muscle goals that can ruin their lives. And I just literally, I hadn't heard about it, hadn't thought about it. This idea of like the danger of exercising um, in the study go, or like the article goes in to show that for a lot of men, um, it really does become an obsession or becomes like a part of the performance of hypermasculinity. This idea that like it's not enough to be healthy. You actually need to have an eight pack or a six pack and, and all these things. 
um, and how the conversation about body positivity or about eating disorders really has been so confined in public to just focusing on white women. And I thought that was interesting. I think it has implications for how we think about the health of communities. I think about my time in residential life um, in college and how we didn't really have a lot of supports to even identify people that weren't women. I, I remember getting trained on how to spot girls who had eating disorders. Like, I remember that. We never had a larger conversation about it. And I think about how we've talked about before in the podcast, how some of these things become taboo in communities of color. So we really don't talk about them. And how do we make sure that we give people the supports that they need? How do we make sure that we have the public conversation? And I just wanted to bring that here. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere. There's more to come. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened, but soon a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondery's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, the Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Now, what's the first thing that you'd do if you had a ton of extra time in a day? Maybe I'd take a nap, go for a run, talk to some friends. Now, a lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? Now, the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and to make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you help you process the world around you, help you think through the most important things, how you spend your time, where you spend your energy, especially your emotional energy. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash people. The Crooked Store's latest collection has a clear message for anyone trying to take away abortion rights. Don't. The No Trespassing collection features four different designs, each inspired by a different state where abortion is under attack. There's Stay Out of My Swamp for Florida, Stay Out of My Hole for Arizona, Stay Out of My Prickly Pear for Texas, and Stay Out of My Strip for Nevada. But obviously, I'll be wearing these no matter where I am. A portion of proceeds from the collection will go to Vote Save America's F-Bands, the Fight Back Fund, which currently is supporting abortion rights organizations across Arizona, Nevada, and Florida. Head to cricket.com slash store to shop. It's 2024. We're facing another presidential election with huge stakes. You want to help. But you don't know where your money will actually make a difference or how to figure that out. Ensure you love to take an edible and not think about it, but you can't because you do care. 
Let Vote Save America make it easy for you with their new anxiety relief program. Here's how it works. You set up a monthly recurring donation at the level that feels right for you, and Vote Save America will send 100% of it to the grassroots organizations and down-ballot races that need it most. Then, at the end of the month, they'll tell you where your dollars went. That's it. Set it and forget it. Vote Save America has already raised $52,000 in monthly recurring donations. Love it. That's great. From over 1,000 amazing, sustaining donors who've signed up and trusted Vote Save America to make their dollar go further. But we still have a long way to go, and Vote Save America needs your help to get there. Sign up at votesaveamerica.com and enjoy your edible. <laughs> Legal disclaimer, paid for by Vote Save America, votesaveamerica.com, not authorized by any candidate or candidate's committee. Did you know that women make up 56% of law students? That's grounds for bragging rights at a dinner table for your conservative uncle who still thinks women belong in the kitchen. It's clear that the future of the legal field is female. So why are so many legal podcasts and reviews authored by men? Hi, I'm Leah Littman. I'm Kate Shaw. And with Melissa Murray, we are the hosts of Strict Scrutiny. Each week, we break down the latest headlines and biggest legal questions facing our country through the lens of diverse voices to give you expert views you won't hear anywhere else. Strict Scrutiny is your guide to the Supreme Court. New episodes drop every Monday, plus bonuses whenever the Supreme Court takes away another one of our rights. Make sure to subscribe to Strict Scrutiny wherever you get your podcasts. And now my conversation with Dr. Elizabeth Meyer. I learned so much from her about the status of cancer research, what's going on, what should we be thinking about, how do we understand it. Hope you'll learn too. The one and only Liz Garrett-Meyer, Dr. Liz Garrett-Meyer, thanks so much for joining us today on Potsy of the People. Thanks, uh, DeRay, for inviting me. Um, I'm thrilled to be here to, to talk with you. Uh, I'm excited to have you because you are an expert in a field that I've had a lot of questions about, but having not an expert in. Uh, so can you talk to us first about how you got to the field of medicine and science that you study? And then like, why cancer? Like, how, What was the journey to this field? So I'm an oncology biostatistician. Um, so as uh, DeRay uh, well knows, um, I went to Bowdoin College where I, um, I studied um, mathematics woo-hoo, and statistics. Woo-hoo. Yeah, Bowdoin College, shout out. And from there, um, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. Um, I was generally good at school. I found the problems that I was solving in my probability and statistics classes really interesting. And then when I heard about the areas of biostatistics and epidemiology, I thought that that sounded like really interesting area to pursue for me. So I ended up enrolling in the PhD program at the Johns Hopkins School of Public Health and Biostatistics. Um, My research and my dissertation focused on um, mental health research. Um, But at the end of my PhD, when I was looking around for jobs, I wasn't necessarily drawn to cancer, but I was drawn to working with um, a bunch of really accomplished biostatisticians and epidemiologists who were in the Johns Hopkins Cancer Center. So I really joined the Johns Hopkins Cancer Center group of biostatisticians to work with um, Steve Pianodosi, Giovanni Parmigiani, and Steve Goodman as mentors, because I felt like I was still very young and green and new. And, you know, it really grew my love for working in the area of cancer, And one of the things that's really interesting and exciting about being a biostatistician in cancer research is there's just such a breadth of different kinds of things that we study. We study epidemiology, we study basic science, we study prevention, we study survivorship, we study quality of life, we study drug development. So it's just so so rich with different topics to explore from a research perspective. And that's how I got into it. And what part of cancer do you study? As a biostatistician, we tend to work in um, all kinds of different 
types of cancer. So we work in prostate cancer, breast cancer, leukemias, all different kinds. Some biostatisticians focus specifically on one kind of cancer, but many of us span the breadth of types of cancers. There are some statisticians that really focus more on the drug development component. You know, that's the kind of thing where it's really taking a drug and it's in an early phase and working with trial designs to develop it to the point where it goes to the FDA for consideration for approval. So those would be developing clinical trials, um, phase one, phase two, phase three clinical trials. So I've been involved in in many different aspects. And like I said, it's a fun job because all of it's interesting and it's all quite different. So it's always something new. Now let's zoom out before we zoom in. Are we learning more about cancer today than we did before? Are we essentially at the same place? Is a cure off the table? Is it, I don't know, like what's the field? I feel like it's one of those things that I, I hear people talk generally about like, you know, F cancer and stuff like that. And I just still don't, I don't really know what ground zero is or where we are. You know, a lot of people will say things like, when are we going to find a cure or, you know, what's going to be the silver bullet or what's the status, like you just said. Now, it's complicated because cancer is really many different diseases. So cancer develops when normal cells in your body develop mutations and then they mutate in such a way that those cells can spread essentially throughout your body if they're not found early and um, controlled. So that's when we talk about Um, metastatic disease. If you have metastatic cancer, that means that it's spread from the place where it started to other parts of your body. So in terms of where we, we stand with cures, it turns out that we do have cures for some cancers. Um, So for example, a number of years ago, Dr. Drucker, who's um, an oncologist at Oregon Health Sciences, he came up um, with, you know, of course, help from other, other people on his research team with the drug called imatinib that can be used to treat chronic myeloid leukemia. What that has done, it has transformed that particular kind of leukemia from what was a fatal disease into a manageable condition. So if patients who have that leukemia take imatinib, essentially, potentially for the rest of their lives, that will keep that cancer in check and they can live essentially a long, normal life. So that's one example where there has been a cure um, that's been developed. Now, if you stop taking imatinib, then yes, your leukemia may come back. But, you know, that's clearly a win from the patient perspective. Now, where things stand, you know, going forward, um, I'm sure everybody is familiar with the concept of chemotherapy. Chemotherapies are toxic drugs that often makes people with cancer feel really bad. Um, the goal there is really to try to kill the cancer cells without killing the patient with toxicity. So those are those are developed in a way that we try to give as much um, as we can to get rid of the cancer without harming the patient. But in, in the past several decades and even more, people in the cancer research have been working on other kinds of therapies, targeted therapies and immunotherapies. And the most exciting area I think now that people um, are really spending a lot of time and energy on is the area of immunotherapy. And the, the concept there is that, you know, cancer cells are smart cells. What they essentially do is they trick your body's immune system into thinking that they're normal cells when they aren't normal cells. If we can stimulate the body's immune system to help the immune system identify cancer cells and go after cancer cells and attack the cancer cells, that is a a great way to try to eradicate 
cancer from a person's body. So for example, um, what has been very successful in many cancers in recent years, they're called um, immune checkpoint inhibitors. There's been many successes where they have been given to patients and they've had great responses in areas such as melanoma, which is a skin cancer or um, kidney cancer or even lung cancer, for example. So people are really enthusiastic about that idea of not just, you know, giving these drugs to people, but can we come up with approaches that can harness the patient's immune system to help the patient's immune system um, get rid of the cancer. Are there racial disparities in what we find and how uh, cancer is impacting people? Or, you know, you talked about trials, and I'm so interested in that because we haven't, you know, I've heard that trials probably were impacted by COVID. I heard that there were probably some racial disparities in who has access to trials or socioeconomic disparities, but like, I don't really know anything about that. So I thought I'd ask. The organization that I work for um, is called um, ASCO, the American Society of Clinical Oncology. And just to be clear, I'm here not as a representative of ASCO. Um, I'm here, you know, as a friend of DeRay's and, and happy to share my experiences with you all. But it has overall been at ASCO and, and across the country in many different areas um, dealing with cancer a focus of disparities in cancer. There's disparities in screening. So, for example, racial minorities um, are less likely to get recommended cancer screenings. And we know that the best way to um, have good outcomes is to catch cancer early. So that's a big concern. Um, We also know that racial minorities are not well represented in cancer clinical trials, meaning that if the population in in a certain area is, let's say, 20% African-American, then the trials at at those institutions should have 20% African-American patients on their trials, and they just don't. And some of the disparities um, have to do with issues of what you need to do to be part of a trial. Sometimes they take more time. Sometimes they take issues of, you know, needing to get transportation um, more frequently um, to um, a site. Sometimes it has to do with um, implicit biases that people think that, well, I don't think this patient's going to want to go on a trial, so I'm not going to bother inviting them to be on this trial. So we struggle with that because what we need to have is that the patient populations on clinical trials should be reflective of the patients who will receive the therapies. Uh, The other real challenge with cancer treatments is that they're really expensive. Um, If you don't have insurance, um, they are prohibitively expensive. And even if you do have insurance, because the treatments sometimes are so expensive that um, people really just can't afford some of the therapies, especially for later stage cancer. So when we talk about um, disparities, sometimes it has a lot to do with the financial ability um, to pay. And in the world of, of cancer care, there are many conversations about what's considered financial toxicity, the fact that it's not even necessarily the cancer that causes toxicity, that people actually end up going um, bankrupt because they can't afford the treatments for the disease. Wow. (laughs) And what about gender? Like, are all genders represented? Is there the similar problem with recruitment? There's not as much issue with recruitment um, across gender. We do see disparities, however, with sexual orientation and gender identity. Um, And some of that has to do with patients of um, sexual gender minorities not feeling comfortable going to care providers. And I mean, I've had a number of conversations with people about this from a research perspective and also from a personal perspective. Um, when you go to a care provider, you have to feel really comfortable and, and trust that individual. If you're going into a care provider's office and you're 
not sure how they're going to respond to you divulging, having a sexual orientation that they might not be comfortable with, that could hinder you from going to the doctor in general, which would hinder you from getting cancer screening, from, you know, general preventive visits to um, physicians. So I would say men versus women representation, that's really not an issue, but I think the broader issue of sexual gender minority is a problem in cancer clinical trials in addition to um, disparities in care in general. Got it. Now, how do you, and this is so basic, but I definitely don't know it. How do you get in a, like, can I go to like www.joinatrial.com or does, does like a doctor have to refer me or like, I don't know, how would I even know? Do you get paid to be in trials? So there are a couple questions there. Number one is how would you get on a clinical trial if you had cancer? So many cancer centers or, or um, oncology practices will talk to you about trials that they have available. Um, many of them also know about trials that are available at different centers. If you go to an academic medical center, so for example, like you know, Johns Hopkins or Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston, they make a big effort to try to match patients to trials. And just to be clear, physicians would never recommend a trial for you that they think you would not potentially benefit from. So they would never say, there's a great standard of care option available for you, but we want to put you on this trial with something that we think might not work for you. So there's always an ethical issue, and these studies go through rigorous um, ethical review to ensure that the patients that enroll in trials are getting optimum care. So that is um, you know, one thing to think about. If you go to um, a place and they have trial options for you and they talk to you about them, that's great. On your own, you can search up clinical trials at a place called clinicaltrials.gov, which is essentially a national repository that we have in the United States that provides for you um, information about clinical trials. And you can you know, search by cancer type and location and, and all sorts of things to get an um, understanding of, of what trials are available and where they're available. Um, you know, you might live in, a, in an area where there is not a research cancer center that is providing uh, a lot of clinical trials, or you could have a rare cancer. And even though you're near a research center that has trials for the rare cancer that you have, they might not offer any for that cancer. So it's not unusual for people to live in one place and travel to a cancer center across the country to participate in a clinical trial. And let's talk about a disparity there, right? You have to have the resources to be able to fly across the country potentially, you know, every month or so and, you know, rent a hotel or, you know, an Airbnb or whatever to be able to um, do that. So that is an issue of disparity that you'd have to have the resources to be able to do that kind of um, commute. And then in terms of um, the payment component, as, as you asked, you know, how do you, do you have to pay to be in clinical trials? The way that it works, and it, you know, it kind of varies from trial to trial, but if, if it's an experimental therapy, i.e. one that hasn't been approved you know, in the United States by the FDA, that drug would be provided for you as part of the trial. Now, all of the regular other care, you know, um, blood work that had to be done or x-rays and scans of your body, your, your cancer, MRIs and things like that, that would be part of regular clinical care. Those would not necessarily be covered unless they were specifically for research purposes. So if I had a rare cancer and I lived in, I don't know, the middle of Iowa, 
how do I participate in the trial? Will you mail the stuff to, I don't know. Like what do I, this is a conversation that's being had um, across the country by places like uh, the FDA and the NCI and other organizations that are interested in making trials more available to patients. And the concept is called pragmatic trials. And, and it's really this idea of bringing the trials to the patient instead of making the patients travel to the trial. So depending on you know, exactly what kind of study it is, what kind of things they need to measure, it's quite possible that from your home base in the middle of Iowa that you could go to in local facilities to get scans, to get tests done, and they could be you know, remotely sent to um, the center where the trial is being run. And you could receive the treatment potentially remotely as well. You wouldn't have to go all the way to Johns Hopkins or all the way to the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota. How is it 2021 and we are just talking about this? That is scary. <laughs> um, do we find, I'm interested in whatever the formal name is for like trial outcomes maybe. Do we find disparities in trial outcomes? And I ask because, you know, we've had on the pod people talk about like seatbelts and how test dummies are like not the size of women, you know, like all this stuff where you're like, wow, we didn't even design the test to support, you know, all like all body types. Right. Uh, do do we find that there are disparities in trial outcomes? Like, do we know anything about know. race, gender or yeah. class uh, in terms of trial participation and outcomes? The way that it works in trials is that we have an eligibility criteria. We might say that, for example, all patients um, with this specific kind and stage of cancer are um, eligible as long as they're over age 18 and meet these safety characteristics, for example. What ends up happening oftentimes is even though there may not be an upper age limit, what ends up happening is we end up enrolling relatively few patients, let's say over age 75. So what ends up happening is the patients on the trial aren't representative in the same way we talked about um, race a little bit ago. You know, people over age 75 might not be able to tolerate the treatment as well as patients younger than age 75. And so when we talk about things like disparities in outcomes, what we're doing, you know, it's sort of maybe a technical term is we're, we end up sort of extrapolating and saying things like, well, if you go on this treatment, you know, we think you're going to live six months longer than on this other treatment. Um, but that's based on a population that it was selected by their physicians to be enrolled on this trial. So we refer to that as a problem um, of generalizability that we end up giving the treatment to all sorts of patients um, after the trial is done. And many of those patients were not well represented um, by the patients that were on the trial. So when we talk about you know, how well the treatment works, the information that we learn from the trials doesn't always translate into the treatment benefit that we see when we start giving it to patients after approval. And after drugs are approved, when you give the drug out to doctors, like for the first year, do they have to send you all a status update about, like, how do you know how it's being received? You know what I mean? So that's called the post-market setting. And in the post-market setting, um, what ends up happening is there is information that then is transmitted back to the FDA so that they can keep tabs on what we would call adverse events and if patients are having serious toxicities that might not have been identified in the trials. Sometimes the FDA, if they have concerns based on what they saw in some of the trials, they can 
say that we are requiring the company to do additional studies to ensure that the drug is safe or, you know, we need to collect more information. Um, they might even say you need to do a, a study that looks at a, a different dose because um, we think that the dose could be improved from what we approved. So there's a lot of still discussions that happen after the drug has been approved by the FDA about how to potentially monitor for safety and how to potentially um, learn of better ways to give the drug to patients. And it's challenging. In, in oncology, it's very challenging. Not that it's not challenging in other areas, but understanding what is the right dose and the right schedule can be very hard. There's not a strong enough emphasis in that component of drug development. And I think it'd be hard to find somebody who would disagree with that. Usually those studies that look for what's the right dose are small studies, meaning they have relatively few patients. And um, the way that they consider what the right dose is to move forward in drug development, sometimes it's not based on the most relevant outcomes. And what is a, can, you said a small trial. Can you just help us understand like what's a small, medium, and big trial? Is a big sure. trial 500,000 people and a small trial is 100,000 people? Or is it a small <laughs> trial like 20 people and a big trial is 1,000 right. people? Yeah, so it, it kind of varies and it, it depends on a number of components. So when I'm, we were talking about dose and I was referring to what we call phase one, it's usually called the dose finding phase. Sometimes those trials can be as small as um, 15, 20, or 30 patients. And they're looking at different doses of the treatment um, and enrolling a relatively small number at different doses. So at the end of the day, you might have only treated, you know, six to 10 patients at the dose that ends up going forward into these later phase trials. A large trial in cancer would be in the order of thousands. Now, again, it depends on really what you're looking for. Sometimes if you're doing something like a prevention study, it could be, you know, 10,000 patients. But if you're looking at patients that have cancer in the world of oncology, it's usually hard to get um, more than a few thousand patients on a trial and have it be done within a reasonable amount of time. I mean, that's one thing that's um, been really challenging in oncology in recent years. What we, we used to think of cancers as being defined by the place in the body in which the cancer started. So breast cancer is a cancer that starts in the breast and prostate cancer is a cancer that starts in the prostate. In recent years, we have been much more focused on what we would call um, precision medicine, which is less concerned about where the cancer is and more concerned about um, the genomic makeup of the cancer cells which is good because we're focusing really on, you know, what is driving the cells here to make them be replicating and potentially spreading throughout the body. And if we can target that, we could stop that from happening. But what ends up happening is a lot of times these targets we're looking for are relatively rare. So it's become actually harder to do trials because we're getting better at identifying these cancer subtypes. And we've just taken a big issue like cancer, like lots of people have cancer, but we're getting better and better about identifying all these very small subtypes of cancer. And so they end up being relatively rare in the grand scheme of, of research and um, finding enough patients to participate in trials to learn about them ends up being really hard. Well, we appreciate you. Thanks so much for being here today. And uh, we can't wait to have you back. Yeah, it'd be great. I'd love to. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. 
Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. Pod the People is a production of Crooked Media. It's produced by Brock Wilbur and mixed by Bill Lands. Our executive producers, Jessica Cordova-Kramer and myself. Special thanks to our weekly contributors, Kai Henderson, D.R. Ballinger, and Samuel Sinyangwe. 